You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen, amen. Thank you, Robert. Well, good morning, church. You may be seated. Good to see you. Glad that you're all here this morning. If you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here at Redeemer, and we have been journeying since, I guess, when did we? Was it May? Since May, we began a study of 1 Corinthians, and we've been making our way through Paul's letter, and really, for probably about the last six weeks, we have had some challenging texts of Scripture. I found myself wondering, whose idea was it to preach this book of the Bible this year? And then I remembered it was, it was mine. And the elders confirmed it, though. So um, this has been challenging. And we have another challenging passage of Scripture again today. In fact, over the last six weeks, 1 Corinthians has led us into uh, to discussion, to teaching around the topics of sexuality, around the topics of marriage and divorce and singleness, around idolatry, around the roles of men and women, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and now the issue of prophecy and speaking in tongues. And I want you to know that these are all issues in which Christians have often been confused about. There are also issues in which the church has divided over. Christians have divided. Even denominational lines in churches have been formed and split around these matters. And so I've hoped to do over the last six, eight weeks that we've been in this section of Corinthians is to try and dig into these issues, not be afraid of them, but to really cannonball into them, but to work through them with clarity and with charity, with clarity and with charity. And I hope that that has been the case. I hope you've been encouraged and, um, and built up. I hope there've been good conversations that have come from these topics. And I hope that the same thing will be true today, that there will be clarity and charity. This issue of uh, these particular spiritual gifts prophecy, and then speaking in tongues, I want you to know that these are secondary issues in the church. Um, in other words, they're not uh, primary issues of, uh, uh, pertaining to salvation. They're what we consider secondary issues. They're important, but they're of secondary importance. In fact, Paul's going to say that when we get to chapter 15 in two weeks. He's going to say, now of first importance, the gospel, which I preach to you. These are secondary issues, but they're important issues. They're issues that we need to understand, that we need to have opinions about, um, and they are issues that we need to wrestle with as a church. And so I hope we will do that with charity. And I hope to teach today with clarity. So here's the title of my sermon. If you are a note taker, the title of the sermon today is The Aim of Gathered Worship. The Aim of Gathered Worship. What's the point of what we're doing here today? What's the aim? And I have three things today. I want to look at the details of the text. I want to actually get in and try and understand and define prophecy and tongues. So we're going to get into that, uh, the details of the text, the issue of the text. Number two, the issue of the text. What's the real purpose that Paul is writing? Paul's trying to teach us a thing or two about the purpose of gathered worship. And then finally, application of the text. We'll try and say, okay, under, hopefully we better understand what was going on here in Corinth. So what? Why does it matter? How does it apply to us today as a local church? So let me pray for us. And then we're going to jump back in. We're going to kick this beehive this morning. How about that? Get back into it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege to gather together as your people week by week, to be built up in faith and hope and in love, to be reminded of the sufficiency of Christ, of all of your blessings that you've given to us, all that you've poured out upon us, um, to serve one another, to worship you, to learn 
to be corrected and convicted where needed, to be comforted and strengthened by your spirit. And so we simply pray now, Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would speak to us. We say to you, God, we want you here in this space. We are here because we want to hear from you. We want to meet with you. And so would you come and meet with us? Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to give you an image that I think might help us as we get back into the text today. I want to give you an image. I want you to imagine with me that it's Thanksgiving. And all of you who have been drinking pumpkin spice lattes way too early, this one's for you. Imagine that it's Thanksgiving. We finally are going to get a cool front. And it's Thanksgiving dinner. The whole family is gathered together. Grandparents are there. Aunts, uncles, parents, kids, cousins. The whole family's come together. Perhaps you have even brought with you to this, uh, to this happy Thanksgiving dinner a friend or a significant other or a neighbor and say, hey, my family's awesome. We're going to get together Thanksgiving. The meal's going to be amazing. Come spend Thanksgiving with us. And so you've even brought an outsider into this Thanksgiving dinner. Everyone has arrived. The scene is perfect. The food smells great. The Cowboys are going to win later in the afternoon. It's the perfect Thanksgiving dinner. Plates are being served. Everybody's ready to eat. The table conversation starts and People are catching up and sharing stories. And then all of a sudden, little Johnny, the oldest grandchild, who just finished his first semester of college, decides that he wants to get in on the table conversation. After all, he's, he has a lot to say. He just took his first political science class, and he has a lot of newfound knowledge about how the world ought to work. And so Johnny jumps into the conversation, and before you know it, he is lecturing and debating his grandfather about politics. Oh boy. Oh boy. Suddenly, dinner has become awkward. It has become dysfunctional. Mom or dad storm out of the room before they swat Johnny across the head. The friend that you brought with you is, doesn't really know what to do. You're kind of embarrassed that you brought them to this Thanksgiving dinner. You see, in all of Johnny's eagerness to use his newfound knowledge, he's forgotten the whole point of Thanksgiving, hasn't he? The whole point of Thanksgiving, after all, is to give thanks, to enjoy family, to celebrate being together in unity as a family. Yet Johnny has turned Thanksgiving into a wrestling ring with Grandpa. And I want you to know that a similar thing is happening in Corinth. I think this will help us understand the text. The church in Corinth has been given a rich outpouring of spiritual blessings that is undeniable. In fact, flip over with me back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, if you have your Bible out. Flip back there. Paul acknowledges this in chapter 1 in verse 4 through 5 in his, in his introduction. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. In that every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Paul doesn't give this kind of introduction. and this, He doesn't say this kind of thing to any other church that he writes to. It's clear that there is this specific and unique outpouring of spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church that was rare especially speech gifts. You see how he notes that in chapter 1, verse 4, that there's been a manifestation of speech and knowledge. There are these speech gifts in the Corinthian church. 
And it appears that in their youthfulness and in their immaturity, their spiritual immaturity, kind of like Johnny at Thanksgiving, they are so overeager to use these gifts and to share these gifts and to show these gifts that they're using them at the wrong time and in the wrong way. And they've turned the gathering of God's people, which is meant to be about Christ, worshiping Christ and building people up into Christ. And they've turned that into a circus into a wrestling ring of sorts. And Paul is writing to bring order and to bring correction to all of this. He's already told us that spiritual gifts are to be equally valued. We shouldn't prioritize speech gifts over service gifts. He's already made that clear in chapter 12. Gifts are, are, are used or are given to, be, to serve and to build up, not to show off. And so he wants to bring correction here. And so suddenly, by the time we've now gotten to chapter 14, all of a sudden, the issue that Paul has really been working towards since chapter 12, verse 1, when he brought up the matter of spiritual gifts in the first place, the real issue finally comes into view. And it's that the Corinthian church has gotten hung up on these two particular spiritual gifts. Back to Thanksgiving illustration. It's like there's this buffet of all of this incredible food, and all people want to do is only eat the turkey and the stuffing. It's these two particular gifts, these speech gifts that they're hung up on, prophecy and tongues. And Paul has been working to help them see things clearly. He's told us in chapter 12, there's a variety of gifts that God gives to the church. We ought not to elevate one over the other. We need all gifts and we need all parts of the body. The Corinthians were failing this test. They were, uh, they were creating a cliques and there was different status uh, uh, statuses in the church, and they were elevating in the gathered worship these particular people that had these particular gifts. And then in chapter 13, Paul says that, listen, if you're not using your gifts in a way that's motivated by love of God and love of others, then it's nothing. It means nothing. You're just like a, a banging cymbal. You're making noise, but it's noise that doesn't help anybody. It actually is harmful. And now he is getting into the details. Now he's finally getting to the thing that he set out to address, which was to bring order and clarity to what they're supposed to do with these two gifts, prophecy and speech. And so let's look back at that starting in verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1, Paul writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Stop for a moment. It's interesting here that Paul doesn't say, in light of all of this, okay, enough with the spiritual gifts. Like, just cut it out. Just stop with the spiritual gifts. You're making a mess of it all. You don't know how to use your gifts. Little Johnny, go get in the corner. You're back to the kid's table. You know, it's not what, that's not what Paul does. He doesn't say stop with the spiritual gifts. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, no, pursue love and desire the gifts. In other words, according to Paul, the church cannot be the church without spiritual gifts. We need spiritual gifts, and we need spiritual gifts of all kinds, even the speech gifts. We need those gifts in the church. In fact, it is through spiritual gifts that God works in us. It is only through spiritual gifts that God works through us. Would you think about that for a second? Jesus himself manifests his presence among us through ordinary people like you and me using spiritual gifts. Jesus speaks to us through his word, through ordinary people using their spiritual gifts. Just think about it. 
Juliet testified to this a while ago. I love this. I, I was going to use an illustration. Now I'm going to use a different one on the fly. Illustrations on the fly can be dangerous, by the way, but I'm going to try it because she t- just testified to this. She said that people in this congregation, although very imperfectly, I would add, I think we very imperfectly loved you guys through that season, but she said people in this congregation loved us and served us during a hard season of suffering and trial in our life. People showed up, people with gifts of service and gifts of mercy and folded laundry and made smoothies and cooked meals. And then using those spiritual gifts, the very presence of Jesus, those people are the conduit of Jesus himself, of his love and of his care, being the hands and feet of Christ to others in need. Do you see that? The church needs spiritual gifts. It needs all gifts, service gifts, and it needs speech gifts. If we're going to hear from God, if we're going to know his word, be instructed in his word, built up and taught in his will and in his ways, we need people that speak God's word using spiritual gifts. And so Paul doesn't say, cool your jets on spiritual gifts. He says, no, pursue love. And because you love, genuinely desire spiritual gifts. Especially, he says, that you may prophesy. Interesting. He's saying that prophecy is the more beneficial of the speech gifts. That's what Paul is telling us. So if you're going to be, Corinthians, if you're going to be hung up on speech gifts, at least get hung up on the most beneficial one. Desire the most beneficial one. Prophecy. Look at verse 2. He's going to explain this a bit. He says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. According to Paul, out of the two gifts that the Corinthians are going to seek and pursue, out of the two speech gifts, he says prophecy is more desirable. Why? Because it serves other brothers and sisters in Christ. It builds others up. He says, unless, which this is interesting, he says, unless the gift of tongues can be translated, then I guess it would be more beneficial. It would be then beneficial. But essentially what he's saying is it would then be turned into prophecy. Do you see that? It would be speech that is intelligible, that can be heard and understood, and then could be built up. According to Paul, prophecy is the one that ought to be prioritized when the church gathers. Now, we need to do some defining of terms. This sermon is going to be more teaching than it is preaching because we have to kind of try and wade through this and understand what is prophecy, what is tongues. And so I want to try my best to help us understand that. Let's start with tongues. What is speaking in tongues according to Paul? Well, the word itself simply means languages. And it's interesting, both prophecy and tongues show up in the Old Testament. They're consistent across the whole Bible. But here's what's interesting about tongues. In the Old Testament, speaking in tongues or God giving tongues was a form of judgment. Stick with me for a second. It was a form of judgment. I want you to think about Tower of Babel. It was a form of judgment in Genesis. 
God confuses the languages as a form of judgment. In Isaiah chapter 28, which Paul is going to quote uh, toward the end of chapter 14, in Isaiah chapter 28, uh, the Assyrians come to Israel, or the prophet is saying the Assyrians are going to come to you speaking in foreign languages, speaking in tongues. It's a form of judgment on God's people for not hearing God's word. But yet all of a sudden in the New Testament, it's like there's this great grace reversal that happens. And you think about the day of Pentecost, where uh, the spirit pours out and the prophet... Oh, okay, Siri, she doesn't understand. Um, how fitting is that? Wow, wow. I don't even know what to do with that. Just move on. Just move on. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying, Siri. Um, there's this great grace reversal in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the spirit pours out. And now all of a sudden the gospel, God's word, is going forward. The word about God's great salvation and his great grace through Jesus is going forward as grace to people. And people are hearing and understanding the word of God now in, in their own unique language. It's piercing to the heart. And then Paul seems to also say that there's another um, side of the coin with tongues. And it's not just uh, uh, language that can be understood, but it's this intimate moment of prayer with God is what he's going to go on and say. And we're going to unpack that in a moment. I want you to think about it. So from Babel to Pentecost, and then from outsiders coming in with personal words of, of judgment. Now all of a sudden Paul is saying that, that God's people, insiders, are now expressing outward. Instead of God's judgment upon them, they're experiencing the greatness of God's love for them, and they're expressing it in words, words too deep uh, for, for groaning, Paul says in Romans chapter 20. So it's this really interesting thing. It's, it's present in both Old Testament and New Testament, but it's distinctive. It becomes a, a was judgment. Now it seems to become grace. Let me give you some scholarly definitions for speaking in tongues. I think this will help us. One scholar says this. He says, that speaking in tongues is an expression of profound emotion from the deepest recess, recesses of the soul that can be vocalized in prayer, praise, or perhaps groaning too deep for words. He's quoting Romans 8.26. N.T. Wright says this. I think this is really helpful for us. N.T. Wright defines it this way. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar. There's nobody that's better, especially on Paul and on Paul's letters from Pauline churches. And so I think this is helpful. N.T. Wright says, tongues refer to the gift of speech, which though making sounds and using apparent or even actual languages, somehow bypass the speaker's conscience, conscience mind. Such speech is experienced as a stream of praise in which though the speaker may not be able to articulate what precisely is being said, a sense of love for God, of adoration and gratitude well up and overflow. It's like a private language of love. This is what Paul says. Now, there are some of us in the room this morning that this is, you're like, you're, I see you, you're like, you're, this is messing with you a little bit. Like the non-charismatics in the room, this is cutting. This is cutting. But we have to deal with it. It's here. It's in the text. And apparently, according to Paul in this text, speaking in tongues is accepted. It's a natural part of Christianity. Paul doesn't condemn it. I mean, he has all the reason. They are making a mess of the church gathering. They've, they've platformed speaking in tongues. 
Like you could think of it this way, maybe in the Western church today, the only gifts that get platformed are like if you can sing and play a guitar or if you're a good public communicator, then like you, you get platformed. They were platforming speaking in tongues and Paul doesn't condemn it. He, he, he says in verse five, like I hope you all could, could experience In verse 18, he says he himself have, has experienced it many times. Speak, he's spoken in tongues more than they have, he says. He understands it to be a blessing to individual Christians. Yet at the same time, Paul also makes it clear that it's not a gift and it's not an experience that everyone will will have. He says, speaking in tongues is not to be center stage. It's not even to be side stage when the church gathers. He makes it clear that praying in tongues, speaking in tongues is a private experience that happens between a person and God. Now, I want you to know something. I want to be honest with you about something. I, I'm one of those people that this t- kind of cuts against. I'm, I'm like prepping the sermon this week, and I'm like, oh, can we just skip that? Can we just, can we just get to the resurrection in chapter 15? Please, can we just talk about Christ risen and reigning in all of his glory? This kind of makes me wrestle a little bit. I don't know how to reconcile this. I myself have not received this gift. It's not a gift I have. I've never spoken in tongues. In fact, I've mostly been leery about it because I've seen it abused in the church gathering. I've seen people practice gift in ways that are actually saying this text. And so I myself am leery of this, but at the same time, I want you to know that there are brothers and sisters whom I love and whom I trust, even those who are leaders in this church who would say not frequently, but at times have experienced the gift of tongues. This overwhelming sense of God's love and God's presence meeting me in my brokenness, not with judgment, but with his loving, gracious presence that has caused me to then pray or praise in words that I couldn't understand or couldn't comprehend. And so we can't skip over the fact that Paul says that speaking in tongues is a part of the Christian life and practice. Not everyone will have the gift. I personally believe that it, just like in the Corinthian church, some gifts might experience more of these kinds of things than other churches, but we have to deal with it. Yet Paul says, though it is a, an active gift, it is a legitimate gift, it must stay private. Prophecy is the gift that we ought to seek and it ought to be used in public. Why? Because prophecy builds up the whole church. Prophecy instructs brothers and sisters. Speaking in tongues doesn't. So what is prophecy? Let's work to define prophecy. What is prophecy according to Paul? Well, let me give you a simple definition first. This is a simple definition, I think, of prophecy across the Bible. So from Genesis to Revelation, how is prophecy understood? It would be this. It is the declaration of God's will for God's people. Prophecy is the declaration of God's will for God's people. This is a basic understanding across the entire Bible. Through prophecy and prophets, God worked in the Old Testament to teach his people, to confront his people, to comfort his people, to warn his people, to communicate the future to his people. Old Testament prophets had a special relationship with God where they heard from him directly and they would speak his word to others on his behalf. They often, prophets in the Old Testament, often it was a hard calling. It was a calling that they would, they didn't desire. Jeremiah says he would rather die than continue on being a prophet of God. They, had, they were speaking God's word to God's people, especially when God's people are in rebellion. 
when God's people are being stubborn. In the New Testament, because of the new covenant of grace, all believers have a special relationship with God. All believers have intimate and personal access to God, and all believers can and will speak, God can and will speak through all believers uh, and can speak through anyone. Now, we shouldn't get too carried away with this. I'm not saying that everyone is a prophet and that everything is prophecy. Remember, we've already learned this from Paul, that there are some people that have different gifts. There are some people that have speaking gifts and teaching gifts and words of wisdom and words of knowledge and the gift of discernment. There are many gifts in the body of Christ that God uses in order to keep his people hearing his word and living out his will. There's also, it's also true that not everybody in the church has been called into leadership roles or into teaching roles. But Paul is saying, if you're going to seek after these speech gifts, at least seek after the one that's going to build up the rest of the church. N.T. Wright is, again, helpful here. Here's what he says about prophecy, according to Paul. And the way that Paul is using this here, uh, I, I had this in my notes, and someone said, maybe take this out of your notes. Paul, Paul is kind of using it as a junk drawer term. Someone was like, take, take, take that out of your notes, because that means it's not important, and we know prophecy is really important. And I said, well, he's using it as a junk drawer term in the sense of like a lot, lot of stuff can go in the prophecy drawer, and it's all important, like, like just like the batteries that are important when the smoke detectors go off at three o'clock in the morning and you're like running to the junk. So not junk drawer term in the sense of it's not important, but he's using it in a, in a diversity. There's a diversity of how prophecy works its way out in the church in the New Testament. N.T. Wright says, prophecy itself in a wide sense includes many different kinds of speaking to exhort, to rebuke, to encourage, to give insight, to open the scriptures, and so on. Or it simply could mean teaching, an ordered exposition either of a passage of scripture or of a topic of Christian instruction. And I want you to know that for us in the church today, in this church today, and in, 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 the, in the church, in our world today, prophecy is about communicating truths from scripture, right? So what I'm not saying is that prophecy is the the, uh, the, you should be leery of the guy who says, I'm a prophet and I'm going to reveal to you something new. It, you should be leery of that. You might end up on like a Hulu documentary about cults if you, um, if you listen to that kind of prophecy. It's about speaking God's word, the truth of the scriptures. And that can be done in a variety of ways. It can be done in a sermon like what I'm doing today where we're opening God's word and we want to hear God speak to us. It can be done in a gospel community when you're gathered together and God's word is open and someone shares something and someone says, you know what, that may, reminds me of in you know, this passage of scripture and maybe God needs you to hear that today. It can be done when someone is um, struggling with unbelief or they're stuck in sin and someone uses God's word, God's spoken word to point them, call them to repentance or call them to greater faith. This is what prophecy looks like. It's speaking God's word to remind God's people of God's truth, of God's grace and of God's will. So we've gotten into the details of the text a bit. The Corinthians are hung up on tongues and prophecy Paul says, basically, out of the two, pursue prophecy. It's the more desirable gift. Tongues need to stay out of the gathering unless, you know, you pray and there's an interpreter, then it becomes prophecy. But focus on God's word is what he's saying. God's word needs to be central in the gathering. And he's doing all of this to really get the Corinthians to drive them home toward a central point. And it's this. Here's Paul's point in all of this that the purpose of the gathering of God's church, Corinthians, 
It's trying to wake them up. The purpose of the gathering of God's church is not to perform your individual gifts. You're not, as individual Christians, using the gathering like a peacock to show off your feathers. That's not the point of the gathering. It's not to perform your gifts. It's not to seek your own spiritual experiences. In fact, when you do that, it's confusing. When you do that, it destroys the unity of the church. He's going to go on in the text and say, when you do that, it's confusing to any non-believers that might be in your midst. It's not distinctive. It's not authoritative. It's not inviting in when, and humility, the presence of God to come in and minister to us as we gather. He says, it's not about your own individual gifts. It's not about your own spiritual experiences. This is not the ultimate aim of God's people. And the Corinthians had lost this. They they had made the gathering of the church about self-expression and seeking higher spiritual experiences. And I want you to know that many in the church today have done the same. Many in the church today have done the same. They view this space, this hour, as a, as, as a space to come in. And, and some people, for them, they got to find a church where they can flex their gifts and be self-important. Others, they view this gathering as a space to come in. I don't really care about anybody else. I've got to go there so that I can get and I can be fed and I can have spiritual experiences. But this is not Paul's idea of corporate worship. This is not what he teaches. So what is Paul's idea of corporate worship? Well, it's twofold. Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that we ought to view this gathering, we ought to view the church's weekly gathering as a space that equips the church and engages the lost. If I could give it to you as simply as possible. What are we doing here in this hour? We ought to be working together in participation with the Holy Spirit to equip the church and to engage the lost. Let me say it another way. Paul wants the church to gather in such a way week by week that it instructs believers primarily and that it intrigues non-believers secondarily. Instructs believers and intrigues non-believers. Let's start with the first one, instructing believers. Paul says, pursue prophecy in verse 3. Because prophecy in the gathering, God's word being spoken in the gathering, he says it builds up, it encourages, and it consoles. I want you to know that this is why we strive here week by week to be word-centered in everything that we do. We want to open our gathering with God's word. We want to sing God's word. We want to pray God's word. We want to confess God's word. We want to teach God's word working through text after text, preaching God's word. This is why we want to be word-centered, because when God's word is speaking through God's people, whether you're playing an instrument or you're reading a prayer or you're leading a confession or you're serving in the kids' ministry, teaching children, when God's word is speaking, God is speaking. And when God speaks, what does God do? He confronts you and me, brothers and sisters, with the truth that he knows us that he loves us, that he's with us, that he's for us, that he has loved us, that he cares for us, that he hears our prayers, that he's acquainted with all of our struggles and sorrows. He's encouraging us, speaking to us in word and prayer, in song and fellowship, in sermon, encouraging us to press on and to persevere and to love him and to live for him and to hope in him until the day of his return. But one thing that we can't do 
in our desire to follow these instructions and be word-centered, one thing that we can't do is we can't go too far on the other side. See, this is where this text kind of cuts against the, against the charismatics and the non-charismatics, both of us. So it says the, the word ought, ought to be center, central. It's not about spiritual experiences, but it also the church ought not to be a lecture hall. We ought not turn it into a lecture hall. It's not merely academic. The gospel's a message that we need to hear and that we need to know and we need to understand, but it's also a space in which we ought to experience God's presence as we hear his word, which is why we sing and we pray and we fellowship, which is why we observe the sacraments. I don't know if you know this or not, but the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper is, is after we've heard the word that we then get to see the word. We get to touch it and taste it and be reminded of it. The word gets illustrated for us in the bread and in the cup and the meal. And so this is our primary aim in our gatherings week by week. It's to instruct the believer to build up the church with the word into God's presence. But Paul says in this text that there's a secondary aim of the gathering. This is why he says tongues are not helpful in the gathering. Because one, it doesn't build up the church, and two, it confuses non-believers. Look at verse 23 through 25. Look at that with me. We didn't read this earlier, but flip there in your Bible. Paul goes on and he says, verse 23, If therefore the whole church comes together, and so I want you to think about the Corinthian church, this network of smaller house churches, and then they're all coming together for the corporate gathering. It says, when the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? In other words, what you're doing is unintelligible. It's making, you're, you're, you're not helping that person in any way make sense of who God is, what God's done, and what his good will and ways are for our lives as human beings. It's unintelligible. But if all prophesy, he says in verse 24, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, if, if God's word is central in the gathering, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. Now, he's not saying that everybody ought to, we should, this is not, don't turn this into open mic. In fact, he's gonna, we're going to look at that next week. He's going to say the church shouldn't be open mic where everybody gets to get up. But he's using this as an illustration. He says, think about it though. If God's word is so central, if like all of you were just speaking God's word with clarity and with truth and motivated by love, here's what God has done. Here's what God says. Here's who Jesus is. And you're all speaking his word and clarity and truth. And an unbeliever enters in and they, and they hear it. He is convicted and is called to account. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and falling on his face. He will worship God and he will declare that God is really among you. Church family, we ought to worship in such a way. This is important to us here. It's first and foremost for the believer, instructing and building up the church, but we ought to worship in a way that is intelligible to the non-Christian. Paul anticipates that there will be non-believers in the midst of the church, that God is always working, drawing seekers into his family. And we believe that here. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you are a seeker or a skeptic, I'm sure that you know exactly what Paul is talking about in these verses. To walk into a church 
and to feel like you have no idea what is going on. You, it's like, you're like, what are these people saying? What are they even talking about? I don't know their terms. I don't know their book. I'm confused about it all. And Paul says, be careful. We need to gather in such a way that yes, first and foremost, it's instructing the believer, but that it is helping the gospel become clear who God is and what he's done become intelligible to the non-believer. I love verse 25. I love verse 25. How do we know that the gift of prophecy is earnestly in use in the church? Well, it's when you go to church and when the speaker speaks, when people talk, you do not hear the speaker. You don't leave impressed by the, by the speaker. You don't, you don't leave and say, whoa, what a great sermon. Verse 25 tells us, you know the gift of prophecy is at work, that God is speaking through unworthy vessels because you leave and what you say, you say, wow, I think I heard Jesus today. You leave impressed with Jesus, with his power. The fact that he's living and that he's active and he's working amongst his people. The presence of God is really among us, a non-believer would say. What an aspirational picture of the gathered church, isn't it? What an aspirational picture. We need spiritual gifts. We need them active. We need God's presence with us when we gather. But it's about building up. It's about making the word clear. And so what do we do with this? So we've gotten into the details of the text. We've tried to define prophecy in tongues. We've tried to see what is really the heart of the issue. Well, the heart of the issue is that we would gather in the right way, that everything that we would do would be centered on God's word for building up the church, for inviting in the unbeliever that they might hear and be intrigued. What do we do with this? Well, first, I hope that this would bring some clarity for you, especially if you're new with us, on why we gather the way that we do week by week here at Redeemer. I hope that it would bring some clarity, that it would maybe make sense to you of uh, why we have such a high value on God's word, why we value participation in the gathering. There's multiple people using their gifts. There's multiple people reading God's word. There's multiple people serving all across this building every week, some using speaking gifts, some using serving gifts, the parts of the body working together to build the church up. I hope that it makes sense to you why we are simple here and not performative. Like if you've been wondering, hmm, I wonder why they don't have a smoke machine. Um, I hope this maybe helps make sense. Like the gathering is not about performing. It's about the word of God building up the church and faith, hope, and love, encouraging and consoling and convicting God's people to walk in his ways. I hope that you know that why we gather here the way that we do in a simple form is our humble attempt to say, God, we want to hear from you. We want to enter into your presence. And it's why I hope that you would always feel comfortable inviting a coworker or a neighbor or a family member or a non-believer into this space with you to know that first and foremost, that this gathering is going to be for you, the Christian, but we're going to try and teach and preach and sing songs and lead in such a way that it would be intelligible for your non-Christian friend, that they would come in and they would actually leave with a better understanding of who Jesus is and what the church is supposed to be like rather than leaving confused by the gathering. And then finally, I think I hope that, uh, that this gathering would cause us to do what Paul says in verse 1. That we would pursue love. That we would earnestly, genuinely desire spiritual gifts. That we wouldn't let this place just be a lecture hall. But that we would show up week by week and ready to love others and be loved by God. 
hoping that we would hear from God, eager and anticipating to hear from God. I hope this encourages you not to miss this gathering with God's people. Paul couldn't be any clearer in verse 25. When God's people together gather together with pure motives in unity according to his will, centered on his gospel, God will meet with us. His presence will come down and be with us week by week. What a promise and what a grace. Despite our sin, despite our faithlessness, despite our weakness, he meets with us, speaks to us. Jesus is here to comfort you to encourage you, to forgive you, to give hope to you. What a powerful thing. This ordinary thing that we're doing as cars drive by and other people are on with their life, what an important and powerful thing that we get to do here week by week to enter in to the presence of a God who lives for us, who speaks to us, and who is coming again for us. What a grace. Let me pray. God, we are grateful to belong to you. We say thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us on your cross, how you've made us new, how you've forgiven us and redeemed us. Thank you, Father, for not only sending your Son, but for giving the Spirit, who is with us until you come again, sealing us, sustaining us, strengthening us, and gifting us that we might be your faithful people that we might serve one another, that we might speak the truth in love to one another, that we might build one another up, and that we might make your gospel known in this city and in this world. Would you gift us, first and foremost, help us to love. Let love be our motive. And would you gift us the gifts that we need to be your people and to experience your presence week by week. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.